0: Now, he may be a father figure of British jazz who's played with Louis Armstrong and even Radiohead, but to many people he's just that really funny bloke with the spot-on timing Off, I'm sorry I haven't a clue. Humphrey Littleton taught himself to play the trumpet, and he worked briefly in a Welsh steelworks when he left school, Eden in his case. His talent for broadcasting was first spotted back in 1947, and in October 1950 he was given his first programme, Looking at Jazz well here he is now no jazz records no silly things to do in that reminds me
1: right where should we start (laughs) some years ago my band and i were uh, doing a tour of the middle east and we went to damascus and we were absolutely enthralled we landed in the middle of the desert in the airport we went into damascus went round the ring road which had every form of transport known to history going around it at the same time. And uh, then we went in, and after we checked in the hotel, we went down to the souk, the oldest souk in in history. And uh, all the wonderful biblical associations, frankincense and myrrh and all that, we went up to a store where there was an Arab guy selling kind of uh, Aladdin's lamps in all different metals. And he saw us coming. And, and he said, are you from England? So he said, yes. And he said, nice to see you, to see you, nice. <laughs> so I can't start with that. Otherwise, you might start shouting. The other way that I could start, because uh, it, it's awkward to start a program called That Reminds Me, because you have to think of something to start right out of the blue, because it doesn't help you unless you say something to say that reminds me. You can't say that reminds me when you haven't said anything. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to go right back now to the earliest recorded words that I ever spoke. And as often happens, I remember vaguely the circumstances. I was three years old at the time, and I remember standing with my father at a bus stop, and I believe it was a bus stop leading to Slough, but I can't remember what happened there, or indeed why on earth we were going to Slough. But apparently what happened, because my father told me, was that a sleepy domestic cat came out of a gateway and walked towards us, blinking, sat down on the pavement and then yawned, showing its teeth. And I flung my arms around my father's tree trunk of a leg and said, let's dead that cat before he eats us. <laughs> as he uh, blew the gaff on my early saying, I'm going to blow the gaff now on some of my own children's early sayings, Uh, some of them were apprehensive as children very often are when my second son David was sitting with us watching Winston Churchill's funeral he turned at one point and uh, asked us does everybody get killed when they get to 90? (laughs) my daughter Georgina was once paddling in the water in Harlech Beach in North Wales where we used to go and stay and uh, it's a long way from the sand dunes to the beach at low tide and I thought that it was about time she came out so I walked all the way down to the shore and I said to her, Georgina, come on out because you're, you're getting cold. She said, no, I'm okay. I said, you're not, you're not okay. You're getting cold. You must come out now. She said, I'm okay. I said, your, your teeth are chattering. And she said, only my teeth are cold.
0: <laughs>
1: I live in a house called Allen Close, which has a, a shingles drive down to the roadway. My son, Stephen, when he was uh, about 11 years old, had a friend up to the house And they'd got a couple of tennis rackets out, and they were picking pebbles up from the drive and swatting them into the air. And there's a row of trees that separates us from the road, and they were trying to get the stones over the trees. And many of the stones went over the trees, of course, and fell on motor cars travelling up Barnet Road on the other side. And a man absolutely puce in the face with rage came thundering up the drive, and he said to my son, Are you belting stones? And my son said, No, Alan Close. (laughs) In fact, I'm thinking of changing the name of the house to uh, Belting Stones. Sending out invitations, you know, at home, Mr. and Mrs. Humphrey Littleton. Belting Stones, half of which Sounds very posh. Later on in his life, uh, my son Stephen was uh, in charge of a record shop in Knightsbridge. And uh, one Saturday morning, the um, doors burst open and some men came in. One of them produced a gun and told him and his uh, friend, who was there as well, to lie down on the floor. And like all... Robbers! they came in shouting, get down on the floor, face down, get your hands away from the robbery. And the guy shouted to his accomplice, go and get the money, go and get the money. The accomplice went straight to the till, opened it and found £13.75 uh, p in it. So he said, there's no money here, there's no money here. And the panic reigned. And so the guy jabbed my son in the back of the neck and said, where's the money, where's the money? My son said, there isn't any money here. I banked it yesterday evening. And the guy said what do you want to do that for? (laughs) And my son said, I didn't know you were coming. (laughs) Most children are eccentrics. They haven't learned how to conform to things. My family is fairly rich in eccentrics of all ages and has been in the past. My great uncle Albert was quite a renowned Victorian eccentric. And, of course, the thing about eccentrics is that they're not, as many people think today, like exhibitionists. They don't know what they're doing. They they suffer from an excess of uh, common sense. He was appointed Bishop of Pretoria, and uh, before he left for Africa, his sister thought that she ought to give him a send-off. So she insisted, although he hated music, on having a musical evening. And what's more, she insisted that as the guest of honour he should sit up near the front as this uh, lady and piano player performed. And he, he put up with a song and a half, I think, and then got up and blundered out of the room. As he passed his sister, she said, Where are you going, Albert? He said, Africa. <laughs> I've uh, been, been quite interested uh, throughout my life in eccentricity of all kinds, and I've noticed uh, that, that some of the strongest areas of eccentricity Of the classroom and the barrack square. Because I believe that uh, people who are even briefly put in complete charge of a group of their fellow human beings go ever so slightly mad, some madder than others. (laughs) I would say one of my favorite schoolmasters was a man called Monty Evans, who was uh, half Welsh and half French. And uh, he'd inherited from both sides a sudden flamboyant character. He, he looked a bit like the actor Emlyn Williams. With his gown on, it looked like a cape, and he had grey hair flowing back, and he spoke in, in very flowery language. When he used to set some homework, he used to uh, uh, correct it at home, and then he'd come in the class and hand it round, telling the boys their results. And he handed it round with a certain amount of flowery language. He would say, for example, uh, uh, Wilkinson, I've awarded you an A+ a feat as surprising and miraculous as one of those of Hercules himself. And it was all that kind of thing. And he got to me, and in a voice as portentous and doom-laden as that of John Humphreys (laughs) on the Today programme, he said, Littleton, D-minus. If this was Russia, you'd be found in the river in the morning, headless, (laughs) headless. headless and floating downstream. <laughs> that, was the most, uh, that was the best ticking off I think I've ever had. Drill sergeants on parade. I saw enough of them in World War I, because I went uh, World War II, Sorry.
0: <laughs>
1: I saw a few in World War I as well, but uh, I don't remember them so well. Uh, when I joined in, up in the Army, I went to Caterham Barracks. I was in the Grenadier Guards, and I went first as a recruit, and then later on I returned there as an officer. So I had plenty of time to see what went on on the barrack square. And I was amazed at the lunacy of drill sergeants. If you're any really listening now, I know that, that off the parade ground, you're extremely uh, balanced and sensible people.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> on the parade ground, different story. There used to be one guy who was actually one of the best of the bunch when I was a recruit there, who, I don't remember his name, And anyway, he might be still alive and be offended, so uh, if you're listening, it wasn't you. (laughs) And uh, he was very mild compared to the others. He'd take you through rifle drill in a quiet and and, uh, regular voice, and uh, at the end of it he'd say, Do you understand? And we'd all nod and say, Yes, Sergeant. At which point he went totally pear-shaped. He'd repeat those words, but at the top of his voice... understand and the first thing that happened, his cap used to fly off (laughs) veins stood out on his neck, his face went a sort of deep maroon colour and shuddered, the whole of his body shook and I swear that his feet that he shuffled his feet so rapidly that uh, he levitated two, two or three inches off the parade ground floor when I went then, after I'd been there as a recruit, when I went to Sandhurst there was another sergeant there who was positively a sadist because we used to drill several squads on this huge barrack square and uh, in the army as you know what the officers do they they perform an essential function on those occasions in that they walk about (laughs) and uh, that's about all (laughs) just to sort of generally see that everything's going all right and at Sandhurst it was the adjutant who used to walk about and he used to walk about on a horse well he didn't, he sat on the horse (laughs) the horse walked about doing what from my observation every horse does when it feels itself in the public eye (laughs) something which would be better done in the privacy of its own stable (laughs) and this sergeant of mine used to keep his eye open and when he spotted a steaming mound somewhere on the parade ground he marched us off Pointing us straight at this thing, <laughs> uh, and as we walked over it, he shouted, "Mark time!"
0: <laughs> so
1: they we were left, right, left. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> Draw a veil over that. I seem to have strayed into a uh, slightly indelicate region. So uh, I'm going to tell you another one now. The main virtue of which is that it's absolutely true. The scene was at the Wellington Barracks, Birdcage Walk, 6:30 in the morning daylight and the regimental sergeant major emerged from his quarters as he always did to go on a round of inspection before the general parade started which was around about 7, 7.15 and he used to walk across with his pace stick which was a thing that uh, you probably know that sort of opened up like schoolboy compasses and if it was manipulated properly from the wrist it would measure the exact regulation distance that the pace should be when members of the Grenadier Guards were marching. And when the, the pay stick was folded up there, it was a kind of uh, insignia of office. He, they used to walk about with it under his arm. And he walked across the barrack square. And in the middle of it, he was brought to a halt by the sight of something which is... I don't know whether it is still now, but in those days was euphemistically referred to as a nuisance. Bang in the middle of the barrack square. And, in fact, committing a nuisance... Anyway, in public was regarded as a very uh, serious offence so he hurried off to the barrack rooms and goodness knows by what form of uh, detection he found a culprit
0: <laughs>
1: and the culprit was wheeled in front of the commanding officer, at commanding officer's orders next day, when the commanding officer would sit at a table and he dispensed justice while all the junior officers myself included used to uh, line up behind him looking stern and uh, the man was marched in and stood in front of the commanding officer, and then the, the regimental sergeant major read out the charge, which was that at uh, some unspecified time of the night, this guardsman so-and-so had committed a nuisance in the middle of the barrack square. So the commanding officer said, what have you got to say? And he said, I'd been out to a public house the night before, and uh, I must have had something funny in the beer or something or other, because when I walked across the square, I was suddenly taken short. And immediately the regimental Sergeant Major decided, Need to speak, sir. Yes, Sergeant Major. On arrival at the scene, I examined the nuisance with my pay stick and found it was odd and obviously made with a heifer.
0: Reminds
1: me of another occasion on which a euphemism got somebody into trouble because my father had a great interest in murder trials. It may have been a slightly unhealthy interest in murder trials. But the euphemisms bit was uh, in a police report that my father so tickled him, because he had a macabre sense of humour, that he cut it out and stuck it in a commonplace book where he kept a whole lot of uh, things that amused him and interested him. And it was from the 1930s, and it's a bit gruesome. It was about uh, a young woman who had been murdered. And the police report said... Because in those days, of course, the word rape was never, ever used. So euphemisms were called upon. And the report said... The young woman had been stabbed 13 times, decapitated, dismembered, but not interfered with.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that reminded me, for some unknown reason, about uh, the sort of things that people come up and say to you. A young man came up to me at a gig not so very long ago, and he said, I, I've never seen you live before. He said, I've, lis- I've listened to all your broadcasts, but I've never seen you in the flesh. And he said, I'll tell you something. Your voice is far more recognisable now that I've heard it.
0: <laughs>
1: and I've always noticed when people say things like that, they walk away and there's, there's then a little falter as it suddenly dawns on them that they've made a complete prat of themselves. A <laughs> lady came up to me in a foyer, came right up to me, stared me in the face and said, if you look as well as you play, you've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> Somebody came up, a not very friendly chap came up, because I played two instruments, uh, sometimes three. played trumpet and then a bit of clarinet and sometimes tenor horn. It must have been on occasion when I played all three, because he came up and he said, do you play more than one instrument to show off your virility? <laughs> <laughs> it might seem unusual to you, that, who know my persona as chairman, of I'm sorry, I, I haven't a clue, that I'm quite interested in insults. And uh, I've made a little bit of a collection of them. One of my favourites, uh, it's one of the more long-winded of insults, and it was when a quite renowned American senator called Chauncey Depew, renowned as much as anything else for dropping bricks and for having put-downs, he was at a dinner party, large man, huge man, and he was in a dinner party also attended by President William Taft, who was a, another large man. And in the course of the meal, no doubt when the conversation had lapsed, Chauncey Depew said in a loud voice, looking down at uh, President Taft's midriff, Mr. President, I hope when the baby is born that you will have the grace to name it after your lady wife. Which is pretty rude when you come to think about it. (laughs) President Taft said, Senator, by all means, if the baby is a girl, I will name it after my beloved helpmate of many years. If it's a boy, I shall exercise a father's prerogative and call it junior. But if, as I suspect, it's no more than a bag of wind, I shall call it Chauncey (laughs) Depew. I like circular conversations, things that just go round and round and round. I had a circular conversation with an old man on a roundabout outside Bradford. I went around the roundabout a couple of times, and then there was a spotted one elderly man, an angry, waspish-looking man with those sort of metal rim glasses like John Lennon used to wear a flat hat I I wound down the window and I said uh, can you tell me the way to the university please what university so I said Bradford University there isn't one I said Bradford University there isn't one I said there must be one I was getting a bit ratty myself I said there must be one I'm going to hear a concert there well where is it then (laughs) (laughs) oh I must tell you this one because I got involved many years ago in a sort of do for um, a magazine called Lilliput magazine, which was a kind of pocket magazine. And uh, they got us all around a, a table for lunch in a, in a big restaurant. Quite a range of, of people were there. There was uh, Cecil Beaton, the photographer. Cecil Beaton was what my mother used to call, another euphemism coming up, an exquisite in the sense that he was very refined and beautifully dressed all the time and spoke in a very gentle voice. And uh, next to him was sitting Hannan Swaffer, who looked like an unmade bed, <laughs> wearing a black suit, which, which I thought rather overdone pinstripe until I got closer and discovered it was Dandruff.
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, Cecil Beaton had on an Edwardian suit, which was very fashionable at the time. I think he may have started the fashion in society, but of course the fashion filtered down to the lower elements of the population and was adopted by teddy boys. And while Cecil Beaton was having a conversation with somebody else, Nancy Spain leant over to me and she said, Have you heard about Cecil? I said, What? She said, He was walking down Piccadilly the other day and three or four teddy boys came running past him. And as they passed him, they said, It's the elephant and castle tonight and it's razors. <laughs> we're warming up now we should be going full steam ahead by about three (laughs) o'clock I must tell you the best opening of an article that I ever read in my life was written by Robert Benchley who used to write humorous uh, articles in the New Yorker and one of them started does the average man get enough sleep what is enough sleep what is the average man what is does (laughs) When I came out of the army, which was in 1946, I went to university, or my particular university, which was a small nightclub in Regent Street (laughs) called called the Nuthouse. I used to go down in my army uniform straight after the last parade, and I'd turn up at the Nuthouse. And uh, some friends that were with me, you know, about the second time, they said, uh, you know, take your trumpet down there and play. And uh, there's a certain look that used to come across musicians' faces when somebody wearing a uniform of the Brigade of Guards came up and asked them if they could play because this particular band was led by a man called Carlo Cramer oh, yeah. and um, he told me when I said to him, why did you look so horrified when I came and asked you uh, if I could sit in and he said, well we had a, a, a colleague of yours from the Irish Guards who came here and sat in the other day and uh, he thought he was Jean crooper which he wasn't and as part of his pef- hopeless performance, he used to throw the sticks up in the air, <laughs> but never accurately enough to catch them, or even
0: <laughs>
1: they'd land all over the room in people's drinks. And you know, <laughs> so. But anyway, I'm very lucky, because I've had a jazz program for 30-odd years, and um, I've toured with a lot of, uh, you know, I've been very lucky. I do regular shows with Helen Shapiro, who is now a fine jazz singer. I've done shows with uh, another American singer, Lillian Boutet. I've done shows with another fine uh, British singer who is unfortunately not too well now, Maxine Daniels. So I've been very lucky. For somebody, I may say, who was famous in my early days when I started up as not liking vocalists. George Melly always tells the story that uh, when he used to come down to 100 Oxford Street, the club I had back in the 1950s, he several times came up and asked if he could sing. And I said, well, in slightly longer words, I said, no. (laughs) And then one day he noticed that I played the trumpet, or did in those days, with my eyes shut. So he he used to dance, he used to run around. I used to call him bunny bum, because he used to hop around like a little rabbit, (laughs) as a wider and wider orbit until he got near enough to the stand and noticed that I had my eyes shut so he hopped onto the bandstand and started singing Dr. Jazz. Hello, central guy. Nearly had a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) shook me rigid. We started recording, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, in 1972, believe it or not, and a whole lot of people were in it. John Keyes was in it for a little while, but he didn't like to sing. And uh, all sorts of nice people were in it, but eventually it sort of solidified into the regulars who were on for years and years and years. That's uh, Tim brooke Taylor, Barry Cryer, Graham Garden, and dear old Willie Rushton. It was very difficult to replace Willie, and I think a lot of the people who've come and done it since, if any one of them had been booked to, so, as a replacement to him to be on it all the time, they'd have felt a bit uncomfortable. Because one of the great things about the Sorry I Haven't a Clue show is that all the time, the four people we've had on the teams have had their own individuality. Barry Cryer, for example, who's had a career not only as a comic script writer, but also as a stand-up comedian. He's the one on the panel who could bring up a gag for every occasion, not only during the show, but in the dressing room before and in the green room afterwards, (laughs) on the bus. And uh, I hope Barry was going to be here today, but he couldn't make it. Because I thought it would be nice to hear that laugh, which I once described as like a, a chicken trying to lay a rugby football. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. <laughs> ah. Uh, Willie had his own, his, his was the most satirical contribution always. And uh, Tim Brooke Taylor was, was the darling of all the girls because they thought that I bullied him as a chairman. And Graham Garden just sits there with that sort of mandarin smile on his face and waits for just the right moment and then comes in with a devastating punchline so that's been the the strength of it all the way through and uh, the best thing that was ever said about me in a review best review I ever had when it referred to me as the soporific chairman (laughs) and I prefer to just sit and enjoy what's going on there's no point in me chipping in in fact when I did it I started doing a pilot show in, would you believe, November 1971. And uh, everybody came away from it saying never again, you know, it was a dreadful experience because it wasn't very good. I thought then that it would never go on the air because anybody who ever did any broadcasting would always be asked to come in and do a pilot show and 99% of them disappeared down the plug hole and never went on the air. So I was confident that this one wouldn't. And then of course, a month or two later, a message came down from above saying we want to run it as a regular feature. I then had the problem of thinking, how am I going to re- represent myself on the programme? Because I can't chip in with all these four comedians on the programme. And so it occurred to me just to uh, do on the programme what I felt like as I drove in uh, the first time we did it, which was to think, uh, I've got a perfectly good career of my own. What the hell am I doing going into the world? <laughs> And that's really uh, been in the back of my mind ever since, as you probably notice. (laughs) But we've had some—oh, we've had—we had had some very distinguished people on. We had uh, a pro-celebrity version of Mornington Crescent one time, (laughs) when we had one of the great knights of the British theatre, the English theatre, as a celebrity guest, and uh, the audience were marvelous because they all whistled and cheered and yelled. He sat down there, and I explained to him in very deferential language exactly what we were going to do. We were going to play an ordinary round of the game so as to remind him of the rules. Then he would join us for another game. So we did an ordinary round. he we went round and round and round, and somebody said Mornington Crescent. So then I said, now, sir, if you would take your place, and if you'd be after Willie Rushton, we'd go all the way around the team, and then you will be after Willie Rushton. So it started with Tim Taylor and went all the way around to Willie Rushton, who said, Mornington Crescent. (laughs) (laughs) So I then had to apologise, obviously profusely, to this actor, which I did, and I said, that's the way things go, you know, it's that sort of a game, you know, everybody takes their chance, and you've been a tremendous sport, sir. (laughs) And and now, if you'd like to go back to your seat... So he went back to his seat to, to more applause from the audience. And I never once mentioned his name. And there was a reason for that, because he wasn't there. <laughs> there wasn't anybody there. It was all I was talking to an empty chair. But because he was very gracious, he didn't erupt like Ralph Richardson or become a bit theatrical like Laurence Olivier, he just maintained a dignified silence... As somebody who isn't there would, <laughs> and people wrote in saying to the BBC several personal letters to me saying what a disgraceful way <laughs> to treat one of our most distinguished actors, and they wrote to the chairman and the and the director general and everybody concerned, and uh, they all thought it was Sir Alec Guinness. Isn't that fascinating? With, with the effect of radio, the people—they all had a name for it I got ticked off
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mrs.
1: Satcher took part in one and uh, she didn't quite get the hang of it because she spent the whole time, the, the, game, the, the game of Mornington Crescent went round and round and round and as you know it's, it's a very complicated game which is based on London street names and underground stations and so on and uh, all she said all the way through was Huddersfield because <laughs> that's the only bit of tape they had <laughs> I've enjoyed it. Hope you have. Been a lovely audience. Thank you.